Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody dies, don't they? Isn't that so? You tried to get into the locked room today, didn't you? You tried. How do the dead come back, Mother? The Mysterious Bride by James Hogg. A great number of people nowadays are beginning broadly to insinuate that there are no such things as ghosts or spiritual beings visible to mortal sight. Even Sir Walter Scott has turned renegade, and with his stories made up of half and half like Nathaniel Gow's toddy, is trying to throw cold water on the most certain, though most impalpable, phenomena of human nature. The bodies are daft, heaven mend their wits. Before they had ventured to assert such things, I wish they had been where I have often been, or, in particular, where the Laird of Birkendelly was and St. Lawrence's Eve in the year 1777, and sundry times subsequent to that. Be it known, then, to every reader of this relation of facts that happened in my own remembrance, that the road from Birkendelly to the great muckle village of Balmahwapel, commonly called the Muckle Town, in opposition to the little town that stood on the other side of the burn, that road, I say, lay between two thorn hedges, so well kept by the laird's hedger, so close and so high, that a rabbit could not have escaped from the highway into any of the adjoining fields. Along this road was the laird riding on the eve of St. Lawrence, in a careless, indifferent manner, with his hat to one side, and his cane dancing a hornpipe on the crutch of the saddle before him. He was, moreover, chanting a song to himself, and I have heard people tell what song it was too. There was once a certain, or rather uncertain, bard, eclept Robert Burns, who made a number of good songs, but this that the laird sang was an amorous song of great antiquity, which, like all the said bard's best songs, was sung one hundred and fifty years before he was born. It began thus, I am the laird of Windy Waz, a camney heel without a cause, and I hae gotten forty fars in common o' the nojo. The nicht that is baith wind and wheat, the morn it will be snow and sleet, my shoon are frozen to my feet, O oh, rise and let me in, Joe, let me in this a night, etc. This song was a lad singing, while at the same time he was smudging and laughing at the catastrophe, when ere ever aware he beheld a short way before him, an uncommonly elegant and beautiful girl walking in the same direction with him. Aye, said the laird to himself, here is something very attractive indeed. Where the deuce can she have sprung from? She must have risen out of the earth, for I never saw her till this breath. Well, I declare, I have not seen such a female figure. I wish I had such an assignation with her as the laird of Windy Waz had with his sweetheart. As the laird was half thinking, half speaking this to himself, the enchanting creature looked back at him with a motion of intelligence that she knew what he was half saying, half thinking, and then vanished over the summit of rising ground before him called the Burkey Brow. I go on your way, said the laird, I see by you. You'll not be very hard to overtake. You cannot get off the road, and I'll have a chat with you before you make the deers, Dan. The laird jogged on, 
He did not sing the Laird of Windy Wires anymore, for he felt a sort of stifling about his heart. But he often repeated to himself, She's a very fine woman, a very fine woman indeed, and to be walking here by herself. I cannot comprehend it. When he reached the summit of the Berkey Brow, he did not see her, although he had a longer view of the road than before. He thought this very singular, and began to suspect that she wanted to escape him, although apparently rather lingering on him before. I shall have another look at her, however, thought the laird, and off he set at a flying trot. No. He came first to one turn, then another. There was nothing of the young lady to be seen. Unless she take wings and fly away, I shall be up with her, quoth the laird, and off he set at the full gallop. In the middle of his career he met with Mr. Mamurdy of Alton, who hailed him with, Hello, Berkendelli, where the deuce are you flying at that rate? I was riding after a woman, said the laird, with great simplicity, reigning in his seed. Then I'm sure no woman on earth can long escape you unless she be in an air balloon. I don't know that. Is she far gone? In which way do you mean? In this. Aha, aha, he, 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 nickered McMurdy, misconstruing the laird's meaning. Why do you laugh at that, my dear sir? Do you know her then? Ho, 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 he, 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 how should I or how can I know her, Birkendale, unless you inform me who she is? Well, that's the very thing I want to know of you. I mean, the young lady whom you met just now. You are raving, Birkendale. I met no young lady, nor is there a single person on the road I have come by, while you know that for a mile and a half forward your way she could not get out of it. I know that, said the Lord, biting his lip and looking greatly puzzled. But confound me if I understand this, for I was within speech of her just now, on the top of Berkey Brow there, and when I think of it, she could not have been even thus far as yet. She had on a pure white gauze frock, a small green bonnet and feathers, and a, a green veil, which, flung back over her left shoulder, hung below her waist, and was altogether such an engaging figure that no man could have passed her on the road without taking some note of her. Are you not making game of me? Did you really not meet with her? On my word of truth and honour, I did not. Come ride back with me, and we shall meet her still, depend on it. She has given you the go-by on the road. Let us go. I am only going to call at the mill about some barley for the distillery, and I will return with you to the big town. Birkendelly returned with his friend. The sun was not yet set, yet McMurdy could not help observing that the laird looked very thoughtful and confused, and not a word could he speak about anything save this lovely apparition with the white frock and green veil. And lo, when they reached the top of Berkey Brow, there was the maiden again before them, and exactly at the same spot where the laird first saw her before, only walking in the contrary direction. Well, this is the most extraordinary thing that I ever knew, exclaimed the laird. What is it, sir? said McMurdy. How that young lady could have eluded me, returned the laird. See, here she is still. I beg your pardon, sir, I don't see her. Where is she? There, on the other side of the angle, but you were short-sighted. See, uh, there she's ascending, the other eminence, in her white frock and green veil, as I told you. What a lovely creature. 
Well, well, we have her fairly before us now, and shall see what she is like at all events, said McMurdy. Between the Berkey brow and this other slight eminence, there is an obtuse angle of the road at the part where it is lowest, and in passing this the two friends necessarily lost sight of the object of their curiosity. They pushed on at a quick pace, cleared the low angle. The maiden was not there. They rode full speed to the top of the eminence from whence a long extent of road was visible before them. There was no human creature in view. McMurdy laughed aloud, but the laird turned pale as death and bit his lip. His friend asked him good-humouredly why he was so much affected. He said because he could not comprehend the meaning of this singular apparition or illusion, and it troubled him the more, as he now remembered a dream of the same nature which he had, and which terminated in a dreadful manner. Why, man, you're dreaming still, said McMurdy, but never mind. It's quite common for men of your complexion to dream of beautiful maidens with white frocks and green veils, bonnets, feathers, and slender waists. It's a lovely image, the creation of your own sanguine imagination, and you may worship it without any blame. Were her shoes black or green, and her stockings, did you note them? The symmetry of the limbs, I'm sure you did. Goodbye. I see you're not disposed to leave the spot. Perhaps she'll appear to you again. So saying, McMurdy rode on towards the mill, and Birkendelly, after musing for some time, turned his beast's head slowly round and began to move towards the great muckle village. The laird's feelings were now in terrible commotion. He was taken beyond measure with the beauty and elegance of the figure he'd seen, but he remembered with a mixture of admiration and horror, that a dream of the same enchanting object had haunted his slumbers all the days of his life. Yet how singular that he should never have recollected the circumstance till now. But farther, with the dream, there were connected some painful circumstances which, though terrible in their issue, he could not recollect so as to form them into any degree of arrangement. As he was considering deeply of these things and riding slowly down the declivity, neither dancing his cane nor singing the Laird of Windy Wars, he lifted up his eyes, and there was the girl, on the same spot where he saw her first, walking deliberately up the Berkey Brow. The sun was down, but it was the month of August and a fine evening, and the Laird, seized with an unconquerable desire to see and speak, with that incomparable creature, could restrain himself no longer, but shouted out to her to stop till he came up. She beckoned acquiescence and slackened her pace into a slow movement. The laird turned the corner quickly, but when he had rounded it, the maiden was still there, though on the summit of the brow. She turned round, and with an ineffable smile and curtsy, saluted him, and again moved slowly on. She vanished gradually beyond the summit, and while the green feathers were still nodding in view and so nigh that the laird could have touched them with a fishing rod, he reached the top of the brow himself. There was no living soul there, nor onward, as far as his view reached. He now trembled every limb, and without knowing what he did, rode straight on to the big town, not daring well to return to see what he had seen for three several times. 
chance certain he would see it again when the shades of evening were deepening, he deemed it proper and prudent to decline the pursuit of such a phantom any farther. He alighted at the Queen's head, called for some brandy and water, quite forgot what was his errand to the great Muckletown that afternoon, there being nothing visible to his mental sight but the lovely fairy images with white gauze frocks and green veils. His friend McMurdy joined him. They drank deep, bantered, reasoned, got angry, reasoned themselves calm again, and still all would not do. The laird was conscious that he had seen the beautiful apparition, and moreover that she was the very maiden, or the resemblance of her, who in the irrevocable decrees of providence was destined to be his. It was in vain that McMurdy reasoned of impressions on the imagination and of fancy moulding in the mind light visions on the passing wind. Vain also was a story that he told him of a relation of his own who was greatly harassed by the apparition of an officer in a red uniform that haunted him day and night and had very nigh put him quite distracted several times, till at length, his physicians found out the nature of this illusion so well that he knew from the state of his pulse to an hour when the ghost of the officer would appear and by bleeding, low diet and emollients contrived to keep the apparition away altogether. The laird admitted the singularity of this incident, but not that it was one in point, for the one, he said, was imaginary and the other real, and that no conclusions could convince him in opposition to the authority of his own senses. He accepted of an invitation to spend a few days with McMurdy and his family, but they all acknowledged afterwards that the laird was very much like one bewitched. As soon as he reached home, he went straight to the Berkey Brow, certain of seeing once more the angelic phantom. But she was not there. He took each of his former positions again and again, but the desired vision would in no wise make its appearance. He tried every day and every hour of the day, all with the same effect, till he grew absolutely desperate and had the audacity to kneel on the spot and entreat of heaven to see her. Yes, he called on heaven to see her once more, whatever she was, whether a being of earth, heaven, or hell. He was now in such a state of excitement that he could not exist. He grew listless, impatient, and sickly, took to his bed, and sent for McMurdy and the doctor, and the issue of the consultation was that Delhi consented to leave the country for a season on a visit to his only sister in Ireland, whither we must now accompany him for a short space. His sister was married to Captain Bryan, younger of Scoresby, and they too lived in a cottage on the estate, and the captain's parents and sisters at Scoresby Hall. Great was the stir and preparation when the gallant young laird of Birkendelly arrived at the cottage, it never being doubted that he had come to forward a second bond of connection with the family, which still contained seven dashing sisters, all unmarried, and all alike willing to change that solitary and helpless state for the envied one of matrimony, a state highly popular among the young women of Ireland. Some of the Mrs. Bryan had now reached the years of womanhood, several of them scarcely, but these small disqualifications made no difference in the estimation of the young ladies themselves. Each and all of them brushed up for the competition with high hopes and unflinching resolutions. 
True, the elder ones tried to check the younger in their good-natured, forthright Irish way, but they retorted and persisted in their superior pretensions. Then there was such shopping in the county town. It was so boundless that the credit of the hall was finally exhausted, and the old squire was driven to remark that, Ah, and to be sure it was a dreadful and terrible concussion to be put upon the equipment of seven daughters, all at the same moment, as if the young gentleman could marry them all. Ah, then, poor dear soul, it would be after finding that one was sufficient and not one too many. Therefore, there was no occasion, not at all, at all, and that there was not for any of them to rig out more than one. It was hinted that the laird had some reason for complaint at this time. But as the lady sided with her daughters, he had no chance. One of the items of his account was thirty-seven buckling combs, then greatly in vogue. There were black combs, pale combs, yellow combs, and gilt ones, all to suit or set off various complexions. And if other articles bore any proportion at all to these, it had been better for the laird and all his family that Birkin Delhi had never set foot in Ireland. The plan was concocted. There was to be a grand dinner at the hall, at which the damsels were to appear in all their finery, a ball to follow, and note to be taken which of the young ladies was their guest's choice, and measures taken accordingly. The dinner and the ball took place, and what a pity I may not describe that entertainment, the dresses, the dances, for they were all exquisite in their way, and outré beyond measure. But such details only serve to derange a winter's evening's tale such as this. Birkendelli, having at this time but one model for his choice among womankind, all that he ever did while in the presence of ladies was to look out for some resemblance to her, the angel of his fancy. And it so happened that in one of old Brian's daughters named Luna, or more familiarly Looney, he perceived, or thought he perceived, some imaginary similarity in form and air to the lovely apparition. This was the sole reason why he was incapable of taking his eyes off from her the whole of the night. And this incident settled the point. Not only with the old people, but even the young ladies were forced, after every exertion on their parts, to yield the point to their sister Looney, who certainly was not the most gentlest nor most handsomest of that good-looking family. The next day, Lady Luna was dispatched off to the cottage in grand style, there to live hand in glove with her supposed lover. There was no standing all this. There were the two, parroched together like a ewe and a lamb, early and late, and though the laird really appeared to have, and probably had, some delight in her company, it was only in contemplating that certain indefinable air of resemblance which she bore to the soul image impressed on his heart. He bought her a white gauze frock, a green bonnet and feather with a veil which she was obliged to wear thrown over her left shoulder, and every day after, six times a day, was she obliged to walk over a certain eminence at a certain distance before her lover. She was delighted to oblige him, but still, when he came up, he looked disappointed, and never said, Luna, I love you. When are we to be married? No. He never said any such thing, for all her looks and expressions of fondest love, for alas, in all this dalliance, he was only feeding a mysterious flame that preyed upon his vitals, 
and proved too severe for the powers either of reason or religion to extinguish. Still, time flew lighter and lighter by. His health was restored, the bloom of his cheek returned, and the frank and simple confidence of Luna had a certain charm with it that reconciled him to his sister's Irish economy. But a strange incident now happened to him, which deranged all his immediate plans. He was returning from angling one evening, a little before sunset, when he saw Lady Luna awaiting him on his way home. But instead of rushing up to meet him as usual, she turned and walked up the rising ground before him. Poor sweet girl, how condescending she is, said he to himself, and how like she is in reality to the angelic being whose form and features are so deeply impressed on my heart. I now see it's no fond or fancied resemblance. It is real, real, real. How I long to clasp her in my arms and tell her how I love her, for, after all, that is the girl that's to be mine, and the former a vision to impress this the more on my heart. He posted up the ascent to overtake her, when at the top she turned smiled, and curtsied. Good heavens! It was the identical lady of his fondest adoration herself, but lovelier, far lovelier than ever. He expected every moment that she would vanish, as was her wont, but she did not. She awaited him, and received his embraces with open arms. She was a being of real flesh and blood, courteous, elegant, and affectionate. He kissed her hand, he kissed her glowing cheek, and blessed all the powers of love who had thus restored her to him again, after undergoing pangs of love such as man never suffered. But dearest heart, here we are standing in the middle of the highway, said he. Suffer me to conduct you to my sister's house, where you shall have an apartment with a child of nature having some slight resemblance to yourself. She smiled and said, No, I will not sleep with Lady Luna tonight. Will you please look around you and see where you are? He did so. And behold, they were standing on the Berkey brow, on the only spot where he had ever seen her. She smiled at his embarrassed look and asked if he did not remember aught of his coming over from Ireland. He said he thought he did remember something of it, but love with him had long absorbed every other sense. He then asked her to his own house, which she declined, saying she could only meet him on that spot till after their marriage, which could not be before St. Lawrence's Eve come three years. And now, said she, we must part. My name is Jane Ogilvy, and you were betrothed to me before you were born, but I am come to release you this evening, if you have the slightest objection. He declared he had none, kneeling swore the most solemn oath to be hers for ever, and to meet her there on St. Lawrence's Eve next, and every St. Lawrence's Eve until that blessed day on which she had consented to make him happy by becoming his own for ever. She then asked him affectionately to change rings with her in pledge of their faith and truth, in which he joyfully acquiesced. For she could not have then asked any conditions which, in the fullness of his heart's love, he would not have granted and after one fond and affectionate kiss, and repeating all their engagements over again, they parted. Birkendelli's heart was now melted within him, 
and all his senses overpowered by one overwhelming passion. On leaving his fair and kind one, he got bewildered and could not find the road to his own house, believing sometimes that he was going there and sometimes to his sister's, till at length he came, as he thought, upon the Liffey at its junction with Loch Allen, and there, in attempting to call for a boat, he awoke from a profound sleep and found himself lying in his bed within his sister's house, and the dark sky just breaking. If he was puzzled to account for some things in the course of his dream, he was much more puzzled to account for them now that he was wide awake. He was sensible that he had met his love, had embraced, kissed and exchanged vows and rings with her, and in token of the truth and reality of all these, her emerald ring was on his finger, and his own away, so there was no doubt that they had met, by what means it was beyond the power of man to calculate. There was then living with Mrs. Bryan, an old Scotswoman, commonly styled Lucky Black. She had nursed Birkendelly's mother, and been dry nurse to himself and sister and having more than a mother's attachment for the latter when she was married, old Lucky left her country to spend the last of her days in the house of her beloved young lady. When the laird entered the breakfast parlour that evening, she was sitting in her black velvet hood as usual, reading The Fourfold State of Man, and being paralytic and somewhat deaf, she seldom regarded those who went or came in. But chancing to hear him say something about the ninth of August, she quitted reading turned round her head to listen, and then asked in a hoarse, tremulous voice, "'What's that he's saying? What's the unlucky callant saying about the ninth of August, eh? To be sure it is St. Lawrence's Eve, although the tenth be his day. It's our true, our true, our true for him and I's ken poor man. Ah, what was he saying, then?' The men smiled at her incoherent earnestness, but the lady, with true feminine condescension, informed her in a loud voice that Alan had an engagement in Scotland on St. Lawrence's Eve. She then started up, extended her shriveled hands that shook like the aspen, and panted out, Eh? Eh? God preserve him! What an engagement has he on St. Lawrence's Eve! Bind him! Bind him, shackle him with bands of steel and of brass and of iron. Oh, may he whose blessed will was pleased to leave him an orphan say soon, preserve him from the fate which I tremble to think on. She then tottered round the table, as with supernatural energy, and seizing the laird's right hand, she drew it close to her unstable eyes, and then, perceiving the emerald ring chased in blood, she threw up her arms with a jerk opened her skinny jaws with a fearful gape, and uttering a shriek that made all the house yell and every one within it to tremble, she fell back lifeless and rigid on the floor. The gentlemen both fled out of sheer terror, but a woman never deserts her friends in extremity. The lady called her maids about her, had her old nurse conveyed to bed, where every means were used to restore animation. But alas, life was extinct. The vital spark had fled forever, which filled all their hearts with grief, disappointment and horror, as some dreadful tale of mystery was now sealed up from their knowledge, which in all likelihood no other could reveal. But to say the truth, the laird did not seem greatly disposed to probe it to the bottom. Not all the arguments of Captain Bryan and his lady, nor the simple entreaties of Lady Luna, 
could induce Birkindelli to put off his engagement to meet his love on the Birky brow on the evening of the 9th of August. But he promised soon to return, pretending that some business of the utmost importance called him away. Before he went, however, he asked his sister if ever she had heard of such a lady in Scotland as Jane Ogilvy. Mrs. Bryan repeated the name many times to herself, and said that the name undoubtedly was once familiar to her, although she thought not for good, but at that moment she did not recollect one single individual of the name. He then showed her the emerald ring that had been the death of Lucky Black, but the moment the lady looked at it she made a grasp at it to take it off by force, which she had very nearly effected. Oh, burn it, burn it, cried she, it is not a right ring, burn it. My dear sister, what fault is in the ring, said he, it's a very pretty ring, and, and one that I set great value by. Oh, for heaven's sake, burn it and renounce the giver, cried she, if you have any regard for your peace here, or your soul's welfare hereafter, burn that ring. If you saw with your own eyes, you would easily perceive that it is not a ring befitting a Christian to wear. The speech confounded Birkendelli a good deal. He retired by himself and examined the ring, and could see nothing in it on becoming a Christian to wear. It was a chaste gold ring with a bright emerald, which last had a red foil, in some lights giving it a purple gleam, and inside was engraven, Elegit, much defaced, but that his sister could not see, therefore he could not comprehend her vehement injunctions concerning it. But that it might no more give her offence, or any other, he sewed it within his vest, opposite his heart, judging that there was something in it which his eyes were withholden from discerning. Thus he left Ireland, with his mind in great confusion, groping his way, as it were, in a hole of mystery, yet with the passion that preyed on his heart and vitals more intense than ever. He seems to have had the impression all his life that some mysterious fate awaited him which the correspondence of his dreams and day-visions tended to confirm. And though he gave himself wholly up to the sway of one overpowering passion, it was not without some yearnings of soul, manifestations of terror, and so much earthly shame that he never more mentioned his love or his engagements to any human being, not even to his friend McMurdy, whose company he forthwith shunned. It is on this account that I am unable to relate what passed between the lovers thenceforward. It is certain that they met at the Berkey Brow that St. Lawrence's Eve, for they were seen in company together. But of the engagements, vows, or dalliance that passed between them, I can say nothing, nor of all their future meetings until the beginning of August 1781, when the laird began decidedly to make preparations for his approaching marriage, yet not as if he and his betrothed had been to reside at Birkendelly, all his provisions rather bespeaking a meditated journey. On the morning of the ninth, he wrote to his sister, and then arraying himself in his new wedding suit and putting the emerald ring on his finger, he appeared all impatience, until towards evening, when he sallied out on horseback to his appointment. It seems that his mysterious inamorata had met him, for he was seen riding through the big town before sunset with a young lady behind him, dressed in white and green, and the villagers affirmed that they were riding at the rate of fifty miles an hour. They were seen to pass a cottage called Moss Kilt, ten miles farther on, 
where there was no highway, at the same tremendous speed. Nye could never hear that there were any more seen, until the following morning, when Birkindelli's fine bay horse was found lying dead at his own stable door, and shortly after, his master was likewise discovered lying a blackened corpse on the Berkey brow, at the very spot where the mysterious but lovely dame had always appeared to him. There was neither wound, bruise, nor dislocation in his whole frame, but his skin was of a livid colour and his features terribly distorted. This woeful catastrophe struck the neighbourhood with great consternation so that nothing else was talked of. Every ancient tradition and modern incident were raked together, compared and combined, and certainly a most rare concatenation of misfortunes was elicited. It was authenticated that his father had died on the same spot that day twenty years, and his grandfather that day forty years, the former, as was supposed by a fall from his horse when in liquor, and the latter, nobody knew how. And now this Alan was the last of his race, for Mrs. Bryan had no children. It was moreover now remembered by many, and among the rest, the Reverend Joseph Taylor, that he had frequently observed a young lady in white and green sauntering about the spot on a St. Lawrence's Eve. When Captain Bryan and his lady arrived to take possession of the premises, they instituted a strict inquiry into every circumstance but nothing further than what was related to them by Mr. McMurdy could be learned of this mysterious bride, besides what the laird's own letter bore. It ran thus, Dearest sister, I shall, before this time tomorrow, be the most happy or most miserable of mankind, having solemnly engaged myself this night to wed a young and beautiful lady named Jane Ogilvy, to whom it seems I was betrothed before I was born. Our correspondence has been of a most private and mysterious nature, but my troth is pledged and my resolution fixed. We set out on a far journey to the place of her abode on the nuptial eve, so that it will be long before I see you again. Yours till death, Alan George Sanderson, Birkendelli, August 8th, 1781. That very same year, an old woman named Marion Hoare was returned upon that, her native parish from Glasgow. She had led a migratory life with her son, who was what he called a bell-hanger, but in fact was a tinker of the worst grade, for many years, and was at last returned to the Muckle Town in a state of great destitution. She gave the parishioners a history of the mysterious bride, so plausibly correct, but withal so romantic, that everybody said of it, as is often said of my narratives with the same narrow-minded prejudice and injustice, that it was a made story. There were, however, some strong testimonies of its veracity. She said that the first Alan Sanderson, who married the great heiress of Birkendelly, was previously engaged to a beautiful young lady named Jane Ogilvy, to whom he gave anything but fair play, and, as she believed, either murdered her or caused her to be murdered in the midst of a thicket of birch and broom at a spot which she mentioned, and she had good reasons for believing so, 
as she had seen the red blood and the new grave when she was a little girl, and ran home and mentioned it to her grandfather, who charged her, as she valued her life, never to mention that again, as it was only the nombles and hide of a deer which he himself had buried there. But when twenty years subsequent to that the wicked and unhappy Alan Sanderson was found dead on that very spot and lying across the green mound, then nearly level with the surface, which she had once seen a new grave. She then for the first time ever thought of a divine providence, and she added, For my grandfather Neddy Haw, he did too. There's nobody kens who, nor ever shall. As they were quite incapable of conceiving, from Marion's description, anything of the spot, Mr. McMurdy caused her to be taken out to the Berkey Brow in a cart, accompanied by Mr. Taylor and some hundreds of the town's folks. But whenever she saw it, she said, Ah, Berkeys, the hale Kintra's altered new. There was nae road here then that gaed straight o'er the top of the hill. And let me see, there's the thorn where the cushets bigot, and there's the old burk that the ain'st fell aff and left my shoes stuckin' in a cleft. I can tell ye, Berkies, either the deer's grave or bonny Jane Ogilvy's is no twa yards off the place where that horse's hind feet are stannin'. Say ye may hauk and see if there be ony remains. The minister and McMurdy and all the people stared at one another, for they had purposely caused the horse to stand still on the very spot where both the father and son had been found dead. They digged and deep deep below the road, they found part of the slender bones and skull of a young female, which they deposited decently in the churchyard. The family of the Sandersons is extinct. The mysterious bride appears no more on the eve of St. Lawrence, and the wicked people of the great Muckle village have got a lesson on divine justice written to them in lines of Blood. Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody come back, don't they? Isn't that so? You tried to get into the locked room today, didn't you? How do the dead come back? That was The Mysterious Bride by James Hogg. So let me first tell you something about James Hogg. So James Hogg, born 1770, died... 1835, so age of 65, impressed by my mathematics there, was a Scottish poet, novelist and essayist known for his work in the Romantic Literary Movement. He was born in the small village of Ettrick in the Scottish borders and his upbringing was marked by poverty and hardship. Hogg's father was a shepherd and Hogg himself worked as a shepherd for much of his youth. However, he had a passion for literature and began writing poetry and prose at an early age. Despite his lack of formal education, Hogg was a talented writer and he began to gain recognition for his work in the early 1800s. His first major publication was The Mountain Bard, 1807, a collection of poems that celebrated the rural life and landscape of Scotland. This was followed by his most famous work, The Private Memoirs and Confessions of a Justified Sinner. Great book. 1824, a novel that explored themes of good and evil, religious fanaticism and psychological horror. In addition to his writing, Hogg was known for his eccentric personality and his love of Scottish folklore and tradition. He was a close friend of other Scottish writers such as Walter Scott and Robert Burns, and he was a frequent visitor to literary salons and gatherings in Edinburgh. 
Despite his literary success, Hogg struggled with financial difficulties for much of his life. He continued to write and publish until his death in 1835, and he's remembered as one of Scotland's most important writers of the Romantic period. He has a little uh, shot at Robert Burns, probably good-naturedly. There was once a certain, or rather uncertain, bard, eclept Robert Burns, who made a number of good songs. Um, so, And then he says, like the bards, the best songs were written 100 years, 150 years before he published them so um you know that that area of scotland so i don't know how well you know scotland um obviously i um, live in carlisle um my father's family are from edinburgh um so I'm, I'm i'm familiar with the place the borders passing through so the borders are their own place really they have their own dialect um the a land deeply um soaked in um ballads folklore and Hogg was very interested in the fairy lore as well. And you can see that. This is a ghost story. And it's a common theme of the ghost returns to right wrongs that have been done to it in the past and won't be satisfied until, you know, vengeance is, is down several generations, which is, of course, an old an old idea. And we see, you know, in Exodus 25 to 6, in the Old Testament, God says, you know, um, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sins of their parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate, hate me. So this idea of, you know, your revenge isn't just for the person who wronged you, it's their descendants. And of course, the borders are known for the the border reavers, which were clan groups of people. Uh, they're not Gaelic clans, but they probably go back to Celtic um, roots because, I mean, of course, this area was British Celtic, you know, so there were the Britons. Uh, and later came to speak Anglo-Saxon under the Northumbrian Kingdom, so Scots and Northern English. And Ulster Scots are descended from a variant, an Anglo-Saxon dialect that was spoken in the, the kingdom, the very powerful kingdom of Northumbria. Um, and so that's that's the language there. Now, the other thing is is related to that. I was going to say about the border reavers. So these were very lawless areas for much before the union of the crowns and even after the union of the crowns of England and Scotland. The land was the debatable land. There was not the neither the English nor Scottish law ran in the wild lands of the borders and the law was dealt by the clans themselves. So that it was this was at the time he's writing that has waned a little bit, you know, but uh, was still within living memory I suppose. They're a place apart, a wild, empty place. You know, if you travel through them, you're struck by how empty the landscape is and how um, beautiful but bleak it can be, bleak and unforgiving, really. So this is the landscape that creates stories like this. So And, and things are preserved, so the clan system is probably an old... goes probably goes back to pre-Roman times from the times before, you know, when the people first came here. Um, now... And that is a link because this idea of, you know, you can never catch up with it struck me as of the, if there's a Welsh poem, um, also Britons, um, you know, the pre-Anglo-Saxon people of of the island of Britain. And so, um, and it's the the Queen Rhiannon, who's a goddess, in fact. And in in that, uh, she's, we know this from the, there's a story cycle called the Mabinogion. And Rhiannon is known for her beauty, wisdom and supernatural powers. And in the beginning of the story, Pwyth, Prince of Dyved, sees Rhiannon riding past him on a beautiful white horse. He's immediately struck by her beauty and grace and sends his fastest horsemen to catch her up. However, no matter how fast they ride, they are unable to catch her. 
and she seems to be moving at the same leisurely pace no matter how far ahead she is. So, and, and eventually he does catch up with Enumara. So we see this theme of the, I mean, she is, she has divine echoes and she's this beautiful woman. And goddesses come and um, are responsible for punishment and things like that. So I think it's a ghost story, but it also has an echo of, you know, pagan myth, if you like, of the divine goddess that you can't catch up with. And of course, um, you know, if we wanted to interpret it from a psychological point of view, we might say that it's symbolic of something that we chase, the divine, in ourselves that we can never quite catch and be married to while we're alive, you know. And this is written from a man's point of view. I guess if it was written from a woman's point of view, the divine figure would be masculine. Um, that's a great polarity uh, in in living things anyway. So there we are. So that's right. I'm, I'm reading also, amongst many other things, I'm reading uh, Who's Who in Fairyland by a guy called John Cruz. And I picked this up at the Chalicewell bookshop in Glastonbury. And that's got all the different fairy queens in Queen Mab, Titania. Um, talks about Oberon, King Arthur. Uh, and it's uh, Ariel, Puck and Robin Goodfellow. It's a great, great book. And it, it gathers together these, the stories. There's much has been forgotten. And I want to take issue with the Druids, you know. I was thinking this the other day. Language is such a wonderful gift. It allows us to pass wisdom on as humans to succeeding generations. We can teach using language. We c so we don't have to discover everything ourselves. I mean, there is non-verbal teaching, but language, what a step forward. It's allowed us to pass on accumulated wisdom of the, of the human race. And, um, and then the next great thing is writing. Which and so we can read uh, Suetonius's in this book that I got this from. There's a, a ghost story by um, Pliny the Younger from Latin literature. Now, his story is preserved, but if we go back to Britain, you know, as we're talking about that, the people, the Druids, did not believe in writing. They would, they can had everything to memory, so they didn't believe in the evil uh, modern technique of writing, and so nearly all their stuff is lost and all we have is echoes of what much have been a, must have been a very rich tradition and culture but it's lost because as the language changes i think this you know when i was um when i was first went to wales and the same is true of ireland and west of scotland with the Ga Ga gaelic gaelic language um that when you lose the language you lose a, so much of the accumulated wisdom languages they say that the language fits a people like a glove. And then if you change your language, you put on somebody else's glove, which you can make fit if you look at Anglo-Irish literature. So the Irish gave up speaking their, their native language, by and large, not completely, let's hope. Um, but um, they took on the English language, which in origin is um, a Germanic language from Holland. Um, but they made it their own, you know, if you think about and that's that's true in this you couldn't so if we want to go down the line james hogg's ancestors wouldn't have going back many generations wouldn't have spoken english but goodness me he makes it his own so i'm not i'm you know i'm not don't want to get sidetracked there is good and bad about about learning different languages um but i, I think my key message is it's important to keep your traditions at the same time, not being xenophobic and going, these are my traditions, you can get lost. That's that whole cultural appropriation thing, which I used to go on about. It's like saying, you know, I am, um, so I am, I'm uh, reading this Scottish story. Now, I live six miles from Scotland, was conceived in Scotland. I'm 
80% Scottish genetically. But some people would say, oh, you don't have a right to read a story, you know. I mean, probably not many, but say if I was going to read an African story, somebody might say, you can't read an African story, you can't read an Indian story, you can't read a Japanese story. But I mean, the point is we're all human beings and, and it's the great, the great joy of the modern world is that we have access to each other's cultures and surely we should enjoy those. I mean, I, I was in Edinburgh on a couple of days ago and uh, I went to Itsu and I had a Japanese meal. Why not? It's, a, it's a, an enrichment. So anyway, I know I'll go on my high horse about things. But yeah, so <laughs> we've wandered a long way from James Hogan's stories. But I, I think that's right. It's a fairy story and a ghost story. It has hints to ancient but mainly forgotten corpus of myth that once would have been familiar to my ancestors and probably a lot of your ancestors. Um, and But we've forgotten it. And if we'd only written it down, if those druids, if we could have said to the druids, listen, take up writing. You know, for example, the, in, the Romans came and they went, there's, there's a possibility that the native people could write. They wrote in Latin and Greek letters, the Celts, um, in different parts. But there's also Ogham, which is later, which is an Irish alphabet specifically for carving things. Um I, I, I think it may, I don't know how, it, and there's runic stuff from the Germanic peoples. But, um, you know, they didn't write things down. And so, I wish they had. And then we would have all of this stuff. Now, if you look at the, the Druids in Gaul, what is today, France, they did write some of the stuff down. So you've got the colony calendar, not much. And they would write curse tablets in Gaulish. And so we have an understanding. We have examples of the Gaulish language, not tons, but we have an example of it. Their Druids wrote stuff down. And when you come to Britain, it appears they didn't write it down. I think the only, um, the only, there may be some examples of written British, and British and Gaulish are very, very, very similar. You, the, you've gone out on a limb. It, because, of course, scholars contest this. This is what they do. People in university just argue with each other. But it seems evident to me and to many other people who know better than me that the Gaulish and British languages were pretty much just dialects of each other. And so, um, but anyway, so at Bath in Somerset, the Aquasulis, the waters, you know, waters of the god Sulis, which is the sun god, really, Heil, um, Sul, uh, in, yeah, anyway, that's the original word for sun in Irish. Grian is a taboo word. Because another thing is, when certain things become taboo, you can't call them by the proper name. So in Native American law, everywhere, this is the case. So uh, in Welsh, for example, the... The hair is not called a hair; it's called squarnog, the the one with the ears. So you can't. You've got to refer to taboo creatures by circumlocution. So you can't call something. It's like calling the the fairies the fair folk. If we call them what they really are, we can call them the Dina She, Tag, We can call them all these kind of things. We don't call them by the real names because they might come. If you call the devil by his name, he might appear. So taboo words. How I got into that, I don't know. There's a great one, like a wolf in Irish. There are like failhu, but uh, there are other words like, um, I think it's maknatira, the son of the land, uh, is a taboo word for a wolf because you couldn't call a wolf. Because people, we taboo things that cause us anxiety. Um, yeah, you think, of, you think of the words we taboo in, uh, I think I've just made that a verb, by the way, to taboo, um, to make taboo words in certain um, physical 
and uh, functions of human beings we don't refer to by by their names. We use like Latin names, or we we taboo them. We don't call them um, what we what we would call them because it causes anxiety. So that's the purpose of taboo words. Yeah, we've had a little bit of a wonder there, haven't we? Um, <laughs> what was my point? Oh yeah, there are some examples of British spoken British, written British, uh, thrown in on lead cursed tablets. So what you did, you went to the gods and you wrote on a piece of lead. Um, Please punish whoever's stolen my ring, or please bring my ring back and met and punish the people who did it. Or, you know, John Jones stole my goat. Goddess, punish him and throw it in, in the sacred waters. And you hope that the goddess would then go, right, John Jones, we're going to make you suffer. So this is, in a sense, is a theme because it's about divine retribution or supernatural retribution for sins. You've heard me say many times, that the purpose of stories, whether they be folk stories, whether they be modern novels, whenever we tell stories, whether they be news stories, whether they be magazine stories, whether they be stories you tell your kids, we tell stories in order to instruct ourselves on how we should behave. Yeah. How we should behave as a species. That's the purpose of a story. They're, they're all moral, in my view. Some people may disagree. They would be wrong, but, uh, you know, everybody's entitled to their opinion, even if they are wrong. So I said that, um, no surprise to this, to my ex-wife. She said, I'm entitled to my opinion. I said, you are, but, but you're still wrong. And yeah, she's my ex-wife. And so, and, and fair play, you may say to her, good good on her for getting rid of such a, a boor as me. Anyway, so, yeah, uh, call to action. I don't have a call to action. Who's in Fairyland by John Cruz is a good book. I'm not going to put a link. I can't be bothered doing affiliate links. Nobody wants to buy books. Everybody who just wants to listen to stories, except me, I've got tons of books. I'm actually thinking of having to devote, devote two days a week simply to reading, and that feels sinful and indulgent. But I need to do that because I've got so many books, and I love books. I go, I go. I was in Edinburgh, as I said, bought more books. I was in what was that the other day? I was in Grasmere. I was in Whitehaven. I was in Cal. I buy books everywhere I go. I've got books coming up my ears. Not literally coming out of my ears, because I don't eat them. And even if I did eat them, they wouldn't come out of my ears, would they? Let's, I think that is a taboo subject, which we're going to circumlocute. Uh, anyway, enough rambling. Hope you're all well. I'm going puppy-sitting now. Um, the puppies are four weeks old. They're big. And um, their mother's had enough of them, I think, because they're boisterous. But I, I'm just like the great-grandpa, so I'm going in for a wrestle and a bit of fun. Okay, hope you're all well. Bye. Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody so dies, don't they? Isn't that so? You tried to get into the locked room so? today, didn't you? you tried How to do the dead come back, Mother? I invite you to consider becoming a patron of the podcast. Patrons perform a really useful task for me in that they give me the wherewithal, the finance through their contributions to enable me to devote time to producing stories for you. So it's actually really helpful if you want to hear more stories. And um, there is a big, on Patreon, there is a big uh, backlog of stories, a big library of stories that you can access by becoming a patron. You can download them as well, which is more difficult on podcasts and on YouTube. But if you want to become a patron, you get the double whammy of supporting my work, which enables me to do more work. Imagine that. You pay me to do more, 
and I do more work for you and produce more stories for you, which is, and, and you know, I appreciate it. So you get my love and gratitude. And also you get access to a big backlog of stories and members only stories. Every month I do at least one members only story. So it's kind of a really good thing to do. And I would just like to invite you to consider becoming a Patreon. It's hard to say links, but this is www.patreon.com forward slash barkid, B-A-R-C-U-D. That's me. See you there.